Welcome to Blitzcast, an NFL Draft podcast brought to you by NFLDraftBlitz.com. And now, your hosts, Alex Kavtov and Ed Hunt. We would like to welcome everyone to another episode of Blitzcast. And we have a guest at the top of the show. We're joined by 2021 NFL Draft prospect and Marshall running back, Brandon Knox. Brandon, Thank you for joining us. Appreciate you having me. It's always tough, you know, with the first name that is spelled a little bit differently than most. I'm sure a lot of people get it wrong. Uh, yeah, you know, you kind of get used to it. Uh kind of don't even tend to correct people now at this point. All right, let's start with the two-part question. What facility are you training in right now, and how are you getting ready for your pro day? Tell us about your, your daily routine. I'm training down here at XPE down in Fort Lauderdale. And, you know, as a draft prospect, you know, my daily routine and weekly, you know, routine kind of looks like six-day workouts, two workouts a day uh, for six days. You know, you have your speed aspect in the morning, weights in the afternoon, uh, with kind of like a recovery day built in there on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And that's pretty much it right now until we leave here. Why did you decide to declare for the draft early? Um, I just felt like I had – all the tools necessary. You know, I felt like I was ready a year ago physically, but I wanted to come back to kind of put, you know, some more mental things on film this year. And, you know, after the season was over with, combining the mental and physical, after speaking with my coach and, you know, the rest of my loved ones, I felt like I was ready to make that next step. How does a guy from Columbus, Ohio, you're all the way in Columbus, Ohio, how does a guy like that wind up all the way in West Virginia at Marshall? Just kind of the whole grade situation you hear about with a lot of kids in high school. I went to, you know, a private school my freshman and sophomore year with a tougher curriculum. Kind of got in a hole a little bit in terms of grades, transferred, you know, to a bigger school, maintained that 3.2 GPA, you know, throughout high school. But, you know, being so far in the hole, I was still kind of on that fringe of, uh, you know, being able to qualify. So a lot of schools weren't able to trigger um, after going to the Ohio State camp, uh, Pepe Pearson out of Marshall, you know, he, he, he offered me. I qualified at the very last second, and, you know, it was kind of a no-brainer from there on out to kind of stick with Marshall from there on. So if Marshall wasn't in the picture, you probably would have went to, to JUCO, I would assume, right? Yeah, I was thinking JUCO. I was thinking about that for sure. Were you an Ohio State fan growing up? Not necessarily a fan, but they play great ball. So, you know, you definitely want to tune in whenever you see them on TV. You had a very productive three-year career. What was the highlight for you at Marshall? The highlight for me would be 2019 playing under the lights in our 75 game, wearing all black. The only time we wear it, you know, during the season um, and beating La Tech. Uh, I don't know why, but for some reason that night, we felt like everything was going our way. And we had a blast, you know, just having fun and just playing ball. Um, and that's one of the more memorable games at FAU. And outside of that, just a camaraderie with my teammates. What was it like being a part of a winning program? Talk about the success you had as a team. Um, it's great. That's what everybody wishes for. Um, and what it looks like is just, you know, people holding each other accountable. Um, and that's how, you, that's how you attain that success. Um, when you see somebody, you know, messing around or, you know, not, not going as hard as he can, it's it's hopping on him and, you know, staying under him a little bit. Um, and just that's kind of what it looks like. And it's a great feeling, you know, once you once you reach what, you, what you've been working hard for. 
Talk about what you learned from that coaching staff at, at Marshall. What did they uh, bring to you? What did they teach you as from a football standpoint and from a life standpoint? What did you learn from the, the Doc Holliday coaching staff? Uh, man, still to me, you know, just um, the mindset of not accepting, you know, mediocrity, just working hard and just doing all the, all, all the right things, um, hanging around the right people, taking care of your grades, and working hard on the field. And those are the three key things that I kind of took me to this day. How tough was this season for you from a mental standpoint, dealing with COVID, not having a normal off season, having a couple of games canceled when you should be playing? How were you able to deal with those things? And how was this year different for you as, as an athlete, as a college football athlete? Uh, this year was different for me because of all the unknowns that kind of went into this season and the preparation for the season. Um, I mean, you're working out by yourself, you know, in ragtag garages, you know, just whatever weights that you have on hand um, and just running on your own and then kind of having everybody come together and do, you know, COVID-style workouts and then camp starts in half the locker room, you know, in the visitor's locker room and half the people's in the home locker room. But the camaraderie's already, you know, kind of split in half. Just not knowing whether or not, you know, you'll have a season or, you know, whether or not this game this week might be canceled that you practice all week for and game prepped for and stuff like that. So just having that ability to kind of play it by ear and, you know, get, get ready at a moment's notice if they schedule somebody last minute because of open windows. So just little stuff like that. Do you see pass catching and route running as something you need to work on? Uh, not at all. Um, I, I catch great. Uh, I do all, you know, the running back routes, you know, at a high level. You know, we don't do it much in our offense, but I do that at a high level. But outside of that, anything outside the basic running back routes, I'd say, yeah, it could be probably touched up a bit. Are you going to be able to help on special teams? Because a lot of teams are looking for those running backs who are not drafted high. They're always looking for guys to contribute on special teams. Did you play special teams your freshman year at Marshall before you became a, a starting running back? No doubt. That's how I built my trust was on special teams. And, you know, that's how, kind of how I started building my name was on special teams before, you know, I got my name called to contribute in the game. So most definitely that. Is there an NFL guy, an NFL running back that you aspire to play like? Who do you like to watch on Sundays? Ezekiel Elliott. What makes Ezekiel Elliott special in your mind? What does he do better than, than most backs out there? He's an all-around back, three down. He runs, he catches, he blocks, and he blocks at a high level. Um, and he does it with a passion. He loves to do it. It's not just a job. You know, uh, he really takes pride in what he does. You know, I model everything behind him. Not a bad guy to model your game after. Uh, what would you bring to an NFL team on and off the football field? sell yourself basically who you are as a football player and as an individual? Um, as a football player on the field, you're getting a three down back. I do everything well. Um, I run, I catch, I block. I love to block. I bring special teams value, given my background um, off the field. I mean, you get a guy that's honestly a student of the game, so even outside of football, I'm always looking to kind of get that edge. You know, what can I do, you know, to kind of improve small things? You know, it can be big or small down to the littlest T um, off the field. Also, you're getting somebody who has a, you know, a great character. 
um, contributing to, you know, whatever neighborhood I'm in, you know, um, just doing stuff that benefits others off the field outside of myself because that's also a big part of me that not a lot of people know. Um, I, I love to give back. I love to help out, you know, when I can. And just a, a high-character guy outside of, you know, just a hard worker on the field. Did you get an invitation to the NFL Combine? I assume you did, right? Yes, sir. Prospects aren't going to Indy this year. When is the big day uh, when you're going to be able to showcase your talents at Marshall's Pro Day? Uh, March 10th. Good luck at that Pro Day, and thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. Every week, Ed and I are going to take a certain positional group uh, in the NFL draft, and we're going to break them down. And this week, we're going to focus on this running back class as a whole. Ed is going to talk about his top 10 running backs. I'll have my say, who I like, who I don't like. So let's start with the number 10 guy on the board. Who is it, Ed? My number 10 guy is uh, Khalil Herbert. He's a running back from Virginia Tech. He's a senior. I think he had one year of 1,000-yard production. You know, he was more of a KU guy. He kind of a graduate transfer type of guy. You know, didn't have amazing stats as a senior, but, um, you know, he's a very good pass blocker, and he has good cuts as a runner. Those are the things I like. Um, Decent power. Wasn't used as much in the receiving game. Probably been average vision and runner. Um, so yeah, this is this is a guy you know you maybe get like fifth round or something like that, and then we'll go down to number nine. I've got Kylan Hill, running back from Mississippi State, who's a guy who I think is underrated. He threatened to sit out the year if uh, the they didn't change the state flag in Mississippi. Um, the flag re- reflected the Confederacy, so he's been politically involved. He's five eleven, two hundred fifteen pounds. Um, you know, my scouting report is he's an explosive runner. I think when he hits the hole, he really takes advantage of it. He has good burst, great vision to find the hole, very good speed. Probably weaknesses, I'd say, needs more effort in pass blocking and uh, needs better hands out of the backfield. Kylan Hill, an interesting prospect because during his senior year, uh, Mike Leach came over and he basically forgets all about the, the running backs that he has on the roster. He just wants to throw the ball 60, 70 times a game. And Kylan Hill just didn't get a chance to, to touch the ball as a runner. But he was used in the passing game, and that's what I like. I think those were the issues that I had with him coming into his senior year because the games that I scouted him during his junior year, I saw I saw a few drops, and I just I didn't see a, a natural hands catcher. And when he came into his senior year, he, he got an opportunity to catch the ball a ton coming out of the backfield. And I saw a guy that has worked on that part of his game because he knew in Mike Leach's offense, you have to catch the football if you want to get on the on the field. After like three games, he decided to opt out because he realized that he wasn't being featured. And he was one of the top runners in the nation, one of the top senior runners. Kylan Hill still found his way to the senior bowl thought I saw him being named the top running back for the American team um, in Mobile, Alabama. So good for him. I agree. I think there's there's a lot to like about Kylan Hill's game. So move to number eight. I got Jamar Jefferson uh, running back from Oregon State. Uh, he's a three-year starter. He had 226 yards versus Oregon. He's 5'10", 217 pounds. He's a junior. I see him as an explosive runner with great vision who hits the hole hard. 
and he has the awareness to make something out of nothing. Not a great pass catcher, in my opinion. Um, I, I think that's a theme with this running back class. But yeah, I mean, this is this is a solid prospect that you can get. I mean, for a number eight, you know, I think he's better than the number eight from last year. Number seven, I'm going to go to my sleeper, actually, is in number seven. But he's still a day three guy. Javian Hawkins, a running back from Louisville. He's a third-year sophomore. Uh, he's 5'9", 196 pounds, so a little bit small. Ran for 1,500 yards as a redshirt freshman. Um, left the Cardinals early in November to get ready for the draft. What I like about him is he has excellent speed and burst. Runs hard and breaks tackles. You know, has that violent running style. Packs a punch. Didn't show up as much in the passing game. Not as great as a pass blocker. So maybe more, more of a, you know, one or first or second down back. You're not the only person that that's high on JV and Hawkins. I've seen people put him in the top five. I don't like him. Mm-hmm. I think I have him as my 13th back in this draft. And here's the reason why. I'll, I'll make my case. He doesn't break tackles for me. Like, he goes down from these these ankle tackles. You can blow on him, and I think he'll <laughs> go down. It, it just it seems that way. I realize that he's small. I, I get it. Like, he's going to measure at about five, eight and a half, and he's probably going to get up to about 200 pounds once you, know, you get to the pro day at Louisville. But I want to see a guy that, that can create, that can do something. He goes down on first contact. I mean, if that lane is open, he's going to make some plays. Once he gets to the second level, yeah, he's got great speed. He's got that great burst. He can make that defender miss, whether it's a linebacker or a safety, and he can take it to the house. He's a big play threat. But my question mark with him is his vision. I think it's below average. He can't break tackles, and he can't find that hole. Look, when the defensive lineman is getting to you behind the line of scrimmage, you got to make him miss. you got to have that ability. He makes the guy miss at the second level, but he can't do it behind the line of scrimmage. He also does too much dancing around, in my opinion. I want my running back to hit the hole, and he's just looking to get east and west more instead of getting north and south. And that's fine. Like You have a guy that's smaller, right? So you want him to be that change of pace guy, right? You want him to be a good receiver. Uh, Maybe he'll give you uh, some versatility on special teams as a returner, but I don't see that with Hawkins. He wasn't featured in the passing game, so we don't know that. He's very similar to a guy that I was high on a few years back, and that's Nakeem Hines. But Hines was a great special teams player. He was a very good route runner. He had great hands. And he also went down uh, very easily, but, you know, when the defenders came his direction, they took him down because he just wasn't big enough. But he was explosive, and he was able to help out in the receiving game. I think Hawkins is one of the most overrated backs in this draft. I just don't see how he's going to translate to the next level. What is he going to do for you? And I don't think he's he can be a featured type of running back. That, that's my counter argument to what you said previously and why you like him so much. All right, moving to number six, we got Jarrett Patterson running back from Buffalo. This is a junior. This is a guy who ran for over 1,000 yards in six games. He broke the FBS record for most yards per game, uh, was the MAC Offensive Player of the Year. He's 5'9", 195 pounds, and is an explosive runner, has good breakaway speed, great vision. I like the way he uses his shiftiness to fight for extra yards. Was more of a runner than a pass catcher in Buffalo's offense. 
Um, not not asked to be as much of a pass catcher. This is a guy that I consider to be underrated, and I think he's uh, he, he might be the guy, if I'm looking for a running back, he might be the guy I target kind of in the mid-rounds. This is a guy that's still being slept on just because he played in the MAC. He came out out of high school. Nobody wanted him, and he wound up a Buffalo, and he has had three straight 1,000-yard seasons. Uh, he has scored... A ton of touchdowns, 14 as a freshman, 19 as a sophomore, and 19 as a junior, like you mentioned, only in six games. He had a game this year that he went for over 300 yards, and then the next week he went for 409 yards against Kent State, I think it was. Those are amazing stats, and he scored like eight touchdowns in that game. I mentioned it on Twitter. This guy is still being slept on, not in the draft community, but among draft Knicks in general, because people want to focus on the ACC guys, the SEC guys, but he can break tackles. He's really good at that. He's got exceptional contact balance. He's got that shiftiness, kind of like Devin Singletary, right? In terms of that shiftiness, because he's got those stutter steps. He's got those subtle cuts that he uses. We don't know about him as a receiver because he hasn't been featured in the passing game because Buffalo always featured him as a runner. I realize that his size, he's about 5'8 and a half, 200 pounds. If he was like 5'10, 5'11, this guy would be on the brink of the first round. And he's not the fastest guy around. But if Devin Singletary, who really bombed the scouting combine a couple of years, he ran like a 4'6'7 and, and didn't have good athletic numbers. If he can go in the third round to the Buffalo Bills and you look at Jarrett Patterson tape, then I think. Jared Patterson is also a third-round guy just because of he brings more to the table than Devin Singletary did. This guy is, is a big-time player, and he's certainly an underrated back for me as well. I think I had him like number 10 when I released my rankings on the website, and then I started looking at it and saying to myself, why do I have him at 10? Like, what does he do worse than some of those guys that are ahead of him? When the final rankings are going to come out, I'm going to bump Jared Patterson to the top five. So I love the fact that you and I agree on this prospect, and he definitely brings a lot to the table. So going to number five, I got uh, Michael Carter running back from North Carolina. Um, had a great senior bowl week. I think he was one of my winners from the senior bowl game. Um, he shared a backfield with Javante Williams in North Carolina. Um, has some pass blocking ability, which I like. He's got great explosive speed. He's that perfect third down back type, can help you in the receiving game. He was a senior. He's only about 5'8", 199 pounds. He kind of reckons to me as like a third down back. I mean, do you remember kind of in the 90s and the 2000s when teams would just kind of, you know, make one guy kind of that third down guy? I think this guy is perfect for that role. I agree with that. He's an excellent receiver. He's got soft hands. He runs good routes. And he can help you as a kick returner as well. And he's got very good speed. You see that. He's got 4-4 speed. The acceleration that he shows like after he gets the rock. And he's a lot stronger than 
people are giving him credit for. Check out his film because he breaks a number of tackles. He runs low to the ground. It's hard to bring him down, kind of like Jarrett Patterson in a way. I love Michael Carter. Uh, certainly a, a winner coming out of the Senior Bowl. I heard that he's a very hardworking kid, comes from a good family, and he also had a game at UNC where he went for over like 300 yards. This isn't only during his senior year. This guy's been on my radar for the past couple of years. Go to number four. We got Kenneth Gainwell uh, running back from Memphis. I like my Memphis Tigers running backs. Really a one-year wonder in 2019. Sat out of 2020 because, you know, he had a lot of cases of coronavirus and actually had some deaths in the family from it, which was pretty sad. And um, you can understand why he sat out of 2020. But um, very productive in 2019, 1,400 yards, 13 touchdowns. Um, needs a little bit better vision, but he's an explosive runner, good feet as a pass blocker, hits the hole hard on the direction, and pretty decent cutter as a runner. This guy should be like a receiver at the next level because some of the catches that he makes are absolutely insane. Some of those back shoulder throws, and he adjusts to the ball and shows that body control almost like a receiver. And that's crazy because he was a quarterback in high school, so he's fairly new to the running back position and also catching the football. Memphis has had some running backs in the past that that have gone high in the NFL draft, like Daryl Henderson, who went in the second round to the Rams a couple of years back. Number three, I got Travis Etienne, running back Clemson Tigers. He was productive all four years at Clemson. Um, You know, made the unselfish move to come back for his senior year. He's 5'10", 205 pounds. Didn't have a great game against Ohio State in the Sugar Bowl, but he has double-digit rushing touchdowns all four years. I think he's an average route runner for a running back. Good speed catching out of the backfield. He's a decent blocker. I like his toughness in pass blocking. Um, Was an effective runner in his career. Had trouble against Ohio State's front seven, but... You know, was still effective along his career, even though he struggled in that game. Needs better vision to read his blocks better, but he has good quickness to hit the hole hard. Um, and you saw that against Wake Forest. I think I think he is a three-down back. I think that's really what he is. I think he's a guy you could draft on day two, and you could you can make him your feature back. We'll go on to number two. We've got Javante Williams running back from North Carolina. Obviously shared a backfield with Michael Carter. That was the best duo in the country. He's a junior, 5'10", 220, uh, two-year starter. Um, you know, played part-time as a freshman. Uh, skipped the bowl game to enter the NFL draft. He ran for 236 yards against Miami. Michael Carter put up some big numbers in that game too. I think he's a capable receiver out of the backfield. Um, he's got the power. He can truck guys. Good explosion, good vision, has good breakaway speed. I think I think he's probably a second-round pick. Yeah, I love Javante Williams. He's my number one running back. I think all three of you guys, you, you can put them at number one. I'm talking about ETN, Javante Williams, and Najee Harris, and I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I just have Javante Williams as my number one back. I, I love his strength, his power. He's got exceptional balance. It's hard to bring him down. One guy is not going to do it. He's got a wicked stiff arm. Um, He's athletic, and I think he has gotten better in terms of his speed. I like his acceleration, and he's patient. He reads his blocks well. And low tread on his tires is probably why I put him at number one ahead of some other guys out there. Extremely high on Javante Williams, and 
Yeah, he's definitely a second-round pick to me. And he showed during his college career, or especially this year, I guess he was featured a lot more as a junior, that he can catch the ball out of the backfield, that he is a three-down back. So number one should be no surprise to anyone. Uh, Najee Harris running back from the out. Except for me, right? Since I don't have him at number one. I mean, you like Javante Williams, but I mean, you, you you're not you're not necessarily down on Najee Harris. You're just not as high on him as others, right? I think there's a certain bias that I have against Alabama running backs, and I think that's something that I I can go back through the years. And for some reason, I was I was never high on the Alabama guys. Like every year, it seems like they're putting a running back to the NFL draft. Every year, I, I find something to nitpick with him, uh, regardless of what that prospect is. And Najee Harris might be as talented as any other runner that Alabama has had through the years, as crazy as that sounds, right? They've had a lot of tremendous running backs through the years. But if you look at Harris from like, what he brings to the table, he might be the, the most talented out of all of them. So number one, Najah Harris, um, he was productive all four years, thousand yard rusher as a junior and as a senior. He's obviously coming out as a senior. He's 6'2", 230 pounds, 26 rushing touchdowns as a, as a senior. He was a five-star recruit out of high school, great body control, great athlete, good toughness as a runner, used a lot in the shotgun and uses misdirection, can cut wasn't as tough you know maybe like when Alabama ranked power concepts that's probably the weakness I see in his game but this is a guy who I, I mean I kind of I kind of think a lot like Josh Jacobs you know is such an athlete that he's gonna be drafted high this is a guy who you know has a lot of production and sometimes teams don't draft those guys as high and I think that might be the reason he might fall into the second round it's just because he's ran the ball but I think teams are also going to say this is a guy who has got that body, got that freakish athleticism that can really take a lot of hits. You know what's surprising to me a little bit when you study Najee Harris? You think for a guy 6'2", 230, that he's going to be that Derrick Henry type of back. I didn't see that. I felt like he tries to be cute. There are times when he puts his head down and finishes his runs, and there are times that he's physical and he'll carry those defenders that are trying to bring him down. But there are also plenty of times that drive me crazy that he doesn't do that. He goes down too easily. He tries to be too cute and trying to stutter step, use that cut, kind of be that smaller type of back, right? You're 6'2", 230. Put your head down. Get physical. And he likes to hurdle over people. He likes to use that spin move. He likes to just act like a smaller type of back. Javante Williams puts his head down and he punishes. Almost, there are some similarities between Javante Williams and Adrian Peterson when they approach a defender, when they approach a linebacker or a defensive back because they want to deliver that hit. I almost feel like Najee Harris kind of avoids it at times. If we're nitpicking... That's the one thing that drives me crazy. Like, deliver the hit. You know, be physical. Finish the run. Get that extra yard. In that Alabama system, it works because the holes are, are huge. And he's able to run through them. And again, I'm not trying to be critical. Najee Harris brings a lot to the table as a prospect that, that most NFL teams would, would love. But I just feel like know who you are. 
Like you're not a 5'8", 5'9", 200 pound back. You're 6'2", 230. Act like it. But the one thing that he brings to the table and the one thing that he has really improved on the last couple of years, or even this year, he almost looks like a receiver out there. He just catches that ball extremely well with those large hands. He's able to run good routes, and I think teams would love that. From that standpoint, he kind of reminds me of Todd Gurley because Todd Gurley can run. He can also catch the ball out of the backfield. Excellent receiver in the NFL. And Najee Harris has turned into a terrific uh, pass catcher coming out of the backfield. I don't have a problem with him at number one. I just kind of tried to bring out an argument why I don't have him number one overall I wanted to ask you obviously you studied a lot of backs throughout the season and you studied these guys the last couple of weeks I wanted to get your thoughts on a couple of guys that I didn't hear that were missing in your top 10 how about Trey Sermon from Ohio State he had that two-game stretch um, especially against Northwestern where he had over like 300 yards. This guy transferred from Oklahoma, uh, where he was the lead back at Ohio State. Got it going in the second half of the year in the last three, four games. Why don't you have him in the top 10? I think he's overrated. Definitely productive, but I think he's good instincts, hits the whole hard. I don't know. I just don't think he was that dominant. I think he took a lot of hits. I think he he was productive, but I didn't think he was particularly um, explosive or, you know, powerful or, you know, he seemed like a very average back to me on tape. How about Ramondre Stevenson from Oklahoma? Uh, He is a guy that was suspended for the first half of the year. Uh, He was a JUCO transfer that spent two years with Oklahoma Sooners. Uh, why didn't you have him as a top 10 back as well? want to get your thoughts. What makes him miss out on this top 10 ranking? I'd probably put Ramon J. Stevenson as probably like my number 11, um, you know, or maybe my 12. But I just I just didn't think he was the top 10. I mean, I just thought they were better. It's just when you compare Ramon J. Stevenson to a guy like Javian Hawkins, I'm going to take Javian Hawkins. You know, when you compare him to... You know, Khalil Herbert, I'm going to take Khalil Herbert. So I, I think I think part of it has to do with the fact that this is just a good, a good running back class. And he was not the guy he was not the guy I wanted. I'm going to stick up for Ramondre Stevenson a little bit just because um, at the senior bowl, he showed me a lot of toughness in, in pass protection. And he showed me that he can be a three down back. Nobody, nobody could get to the quarterback in, that, in those one on one drills. He was just a beast. Stepping up, showing off his strength, his hand placement. He had perfect hand placement, and he had good strength at the point of attack. And when he came back in the second half of the year for Oklahoma, that's when the Sooners' offense got going. I know we want to praise like Spencer Rattler, but they didn't have a running game. Stevenson came back, and he just he kept getting better and better and better. And what impresses me about him is that he's a big guy. Like, he is 6 feet, 6'1". He's about 230 pounds, but he moves moves like a smaller back. He's got really quick feet, and he's not afraid to, to lay the lumber and fall forward. And he seems like he always finishes and always falls forward. Doesn't have a lot of tread on his tires. Obviously, you have to dig deeper into some of the off-the-field issues that he had because he was suspended uh, at Oklahoma his senior year. 
again, there's a lot to like. Like, the tools are there, and therefore, that's the reason why I put Ramondre Stevenson in the top 10. There's one back coming into the year that a lot of people expected to just take off once again because he had this great sophomore campaign where he rushed for over 2,000 yards. Now, I'm talking about Chuba Hubbard from Oklahoma State. This year, he faced injuries. We didn't see the, the same type of back. We didn't see the same explosive plays that we got accustomed to in 2019. What happened to Chuba Hubbard this year? What did you see on film when you compared his 2019 film to, to this year's? It just the fact of the matter is, is that durability is really important with running backs. And the fact of the matter is, is that he was injured. He was injured in, in 2020. And then in 2019, he carried the ball an insane amount of times. Um, you know, he was the leading rusher in college football. I just, I just don't think a, a team really like, I, I just, if I'm an NFL GM, I'm not going to zone in on Chuba Hubbard, not because he's not a good runner, just because he's, he's just got a lot of tread on him. So you mentioned that Trey Sermon is one of your overrated guys. Any more guys that you felt were overrated in this draft class? I mean, there's a guy who went to the Senior Bowl that I, I, I just, I'm just not that impressed with. It's uh, Larry Roundtree from Missouri. Was was their leading rusher? Sure, has a lot of tread. You know, ran the ball for four years. Not a tough blocker. Needs to hit the hole harder. Very average speed, average vision. I think he goes down too easy. Needs to be better at breaking tackles. He got exposed. I mean, Missouri's offensive line, you know, has struggled the past few years, and he didn't really stick out to me. I wanted to mention a guy from Coastal Carolina, C.J. Marable. I think he's a guy that brings speed. He's a guy that brings excellent receiving ability. He's got soft hands, caught the ball extremely well the last couple of years at at Coastal. Uh, He's a good route runner. I love the way he hits that hole. He's more of an outside runner than an inside guy, but I just, I love what he brings to the table. He's one of my sleeper guys, a guy that you should look out for in the later round, probably like the seventh round, or maybe he's even going to be an undrafted free agent, but this guy's got a fire. He's a leader. Uh, I like him as as my sleeper. When you look at this running back class, are you excited about this group overall? Do you think this is a better group than what we had last year with J.K. Dobbins and Jonathan Taylor? You know what I really like is I think there's a lot of like mid-round options in this class. Like, you know, you could wait till like the fourth round and get a good guy. Um, that's what I like about this class. I mean, I'm not a big fan of investing a high round pick you know, like a first or a second round pick on a running back when you can get good talent in the third or fourth round. I mean, I felt the same way about last year's class with Edward Zeller. It was like, you know, he went in the first round, but I was like, I thought he was like a day two pick and I was like, there's good value there. I mean, I just, I feel, I feel like it's, uh, if I'm going to invest in a running back, I might as well wait a few because I don't, I don't think there's a huge difference between them. I agree with you, Ed. I'm also in that same boat. I think you can find running backs later on in the draft on day two or day three or even bring in some some talented guys that are excellent pass catchers or, or very good short yardage backs as undrafted free agents. You say that you wouldn't invest uh, on a running back in the first round, but you were a big fan of Jonathan Taylor, and you told me, you said that Jonathan Taylor, you would invest a top 10 pick on him. 
Yeah, I mean, Jonathan Taylor was a special back. He, I, I, I don't think he ended up being as good as I thought he would be. But, I mean, he was a guy that they were talking about for the Heisman Trophy for a lot of years. I mean, I, I guess I guess the problem with Jonathan Taylor was the fumbles. and But I still, I still think he's going to have a very good career with the Indianapolis Colts. And he did get going in the second half of the year, and that offense was, was rolling. And then it's major reason why they made the playoffs. All right, let's move on to the Super Bowl. Let's leave the, the draft stuff behind. Super Bowl recap. Uh, Tampa Bay Bucks and Tom Brady just demolished the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl. It was unexpected. Most people expected a close game, an offensive showdown, yet the Chiefs only scored nine points. Yeah, I mean, this was definitely probably one of the weakest games from Patrick Mahomes. I think I think there's one narrative that's coming out of this game that I think is very true in that I think the Bucks really won this game at the line of scrimmage. I think they were a better team at the line of scrimmage, and that kind of sort of spread throughout the game and ended up affecting the outcome of the game. You you can't talk about this game without talking about how Tom Brady has more Super Bowls than any other franchise in football. So, I mean, that's more than the Pittsburgh Steelers, more than the New England Patriots, who he won six Super Bowls with. He, he really is the the greatest of all time, and... Um, you give him credit. I mean, to do it at 43 years old, I think he's 43, and uh, you know his TB12 method is really working, and he looks really healthy, and it looks like he's having a little fun too this year. Well, the defense for the Bucks played a great game, and I realize Tom Brady was the MVP of this game, but if you can give out MVPs to the coaches, Todd Bowles, the defensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Bucks, to me is the real MVP. Because in the Week 12 matchup against the Chiefs, he didn't have any answers against Kansas City. He put Carlton Davis on an island against Tyreek Hill, and I've said this on a few shows already, Tyreek Hill burned the Bucks for like over 200 yards in the first quarter. Well, this game, they played zone. They kept everything in front of them. Uh, they played even three safeties on the back end. He gave them exotic looks, and he was like, all right, Patrick, why don't you beat us? Check it down to your running backs. The Chiefs got too greedy. They got too stubborn. It seemed like I was re-watching the game, and I just felt like Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy they had this game plan where they just wanted to, to demolish the Bucks. They wanted to make uh, the entire game and kind of capitalize on the big plays, but the Bucks weren't giving it to them. And I kept saying to myself when I was re-watching the game, why aren't the Chiefs running the ball? Like, you've got five offensive linemen against four defensive linemen. It's a lot easier to run block than to pass protect. Patrick Mahomes was on, under constant duress. He was pressured on like half of his dropbacks. How can you have success? It, even if you're a superman, you're not going to have success finding the open man because you're always facing that pressure. And I always felt like it's a lot easier to run block. You should have done that. Ran the ball. I they had like six yards per carry. And if they would have changed up their game plan in the second quarter when the game was still in reach, when it was still like 7-3, to three, then it was 14-3, to three, they had opportunities. Todd Bowles just outsmarted the offensive coaching staff for the Kansas City Chiefs. And to me, that was the narrative. The Bucs knew exactly what the Chiefs wanted to do. 
and they didn't adjust. They were too stubborn to do so. And it really surprised me because, hey, the, the Chiefs have made adjustments in the past. They've been here before. Second go-around for this team. They didn't have any answers. And 11 penalties for 120 yards for the Chiefs? That's a lot. And they weren't able to overcome it uh, against the Tampa Bay Bucks. So I would say, is Tom Brady going to keep playing until he's about 50 years old? <laughs> I don't. I don't think it'll go that long. But I think he's got a. I. I think he plays one more year next year, and then, and then I think he'll be done. <laughs> I mean. I mean, if he's playing until he's like forty six, that would just be ridiculous. It was good to see Gronk as well, more involved in the passing game because he caught six passes. Uh, he gained more than half of his yards after the catch, and he scored two touchdowns. It's crazy, huh? Antonio Brown caught a touchdown pass. But Mike Evans and Godwin, it's not like they, they caught a lot of balls. The tight ends were featured. We saw A.B. catch that, that touchdown pass. It was an unusual game. Like, everybody expected an offensive showdown, and the Chiefs kicked three field goals in that game. Three field goals. That's it. They didn't have any answers. And it's just, I'm surprised. But you called it. You said that the Bucks were going to win, that it would be a, a nice story for Tom Brady and and the Bucks team, the All-Star team, and uh, he he walked away as the victor and yeah, it seemed like he was having a lot of fun during the the Super Bowl celebration, right? Yeah, he sure was. I think he got uh carried out cuz he had a few too many drinks, but um, you know, when you win 5 Super Bowl MVPs and, you know, 7 Super Bowls and you you get to do that once in a while. <laughs> he was truly an outstanding. He he I mean, he's he's had an outstanding career and I mean, just to think that this guy was a sixth-round pick and um, what he what he ended up being for football. I mean, if I had to if I had to put like three three names, three quarterbacks that I would say for for all time. I mean, I would say my top three. One would be Joe Montana. One would be Peyton Manning, and the other would be Tom Brady. Tom Brady was the biggest winner of those three. I mean, he may he may not have had the talent that Peyton Manning had, but he he sure under pressure knew how to win. He knew how to coach his team. You know, he 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 was always great in situational football. He has to be the winningest quarterback in in football history in the right. You know, even in the regular season, and you know, whenever whenever the the moment gets big. That's when Brady shines, and and I think that's really what I think that's what makes him unique. Peyton Manning only had two, but I mean Peyton Manning led so many. He was the centerpiece of that Colts franchise, and then for him to go to Denver and just have that dominant offense with Demarius Thomas, those are the three. I mean, who who would be your three? I mean, you've been watching football for a long time. I mean, who would be your your top three quarterbacks? It's hard to argue with Tom Brady being number one just because of all the championships and uh, he proved to everyone that he can get it done without the Patriots, without Bill Belichick, that he can go to a team like the Tampa Bay Bucks and win it in his first year. So Brady is clearly the GOAT. At number two, I have to go Joe Montana because before there was Tom Brady, there was the story of Joe Montana, who was a third-round pick coming out of Notre Dame, who didn't have the arm strength but was clearly a cerebral quarterback that ran that West Coast offense in San Francisco to perfection. Also went to the Chiefs for two years, led them to the AFC Championship game, but wasn't able to win it. And at number three, I have to go John Elway. 
John Elway lost four Super Bowls in his early days, but I've never seen a quarterback who was more physically gifted than John Elway. He put up all those yards. He had all those fourth quarter comebacks. I have to put him at number three. Before there was Andrew Luck, before there was Patrick Mahomes, there was John Elway. And I got to give him credit when he won those two Super Bowls with Mike Shanahan in Denver. It wasn't the same John Elway because they did it by running the ball with Terrell Davis. But uh, John Elway capturing those two Super Bowls kind of at the end of his career. You know I don't like him as a GM, but as a player, (laughs) I have a lot of respect for John Elway because I got to see him uh, during the 1990s. He was Mr. Denver Bronco at that time. Peyton Manning would be number four for me because I don't think I've seen a more cerebral quarterback uh, a guy that understood what was going on on the football field at all times. He's just He was kind of like a professor on the football field. He can recognize defenses and tell his, his offensive guys and his offensive line where to be. So Manning has got to be at four. At five, I'm not sure. It would have to be probably a tie between two Packer quarterbacks, between Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers. I think those are the guys that I would probably round out my top five. Hey, in 15 years, maybe we're talking about Patrick Mahomes as the greatest quarterback of all time. And uh, we'll see what happens with that. The regular season NFL awards were released. Aaron Rodgers was named the MVP. Aaron Donald became the defensive player of the year. Justin Herbert, your boy. I'm going to call him your boy from now on. Offensive Rookie of the Year. Chase Young captured the Defensive Rookie of the Year award. Stefanski, the Browns coach, became the Coach of the Year. Alex Smith was the Comeback Player of the Year. Do you have any beef with who won, who lost? I'll tell you this. I thought T.J. Watt deserved to win Defensive Player of the Year over Aaron Donald. I realize that you can give it to Donald every year. He is the best defensive player in the league. He might be the best player, period, in the NFL because he's being double-teamed, triple-teamed on a regular basis, and he still gets to the quarterback. He's still making a ton of tackles for loss behind the line of scrimmage. I thought T.J. Watt, your guy of the Pittsburgh Steelers, deserved to win that award. Tommy Jagai of uh, Stell Curtin, you know, posted a a stat and and when you compare their stats I think uh you know TJ Watt had better stats than Aaron Donald I will say though the Aaron Donald rushes from the interior so you expect better stats from a guy from the exterior you can't go wrong with either guy I do think I do think that TJ Watt will get that award at some point in his career I was thinking about this last night you know you got you got JJ Watt and TJ Watt who is better both were I mean you know elite defensive players in the league. I mean, J.J. Watt's a little older. Who, when you when it's said and done, who would you say is the better brother? I don't know. It's a tough one. It's like, who is the better brother between Joey Bosa and Nick Bosa? It's kind of like the same question. I, I don't think you're... You're not going to get an answer from me because I think all four of those guys are great. I can't say that J.J. Watt is better than T.J. Watt. Uh, you know, both guys have a great story. J.J. Watt transferred from like, you know, a small school, transferred to Wisconsin, and just became a big time player 
uh, for the Houston Texans. T.J. Watt kind of rose out of nowhere almost. Um, also, like in his last year in college, uh, the Steelers drafted him in the first round, and it looks like the sky is the limit for this guy. J.J. Watt is already like ready to ride off into the sunset. T.J., this is it. I mean, this is his prime. He is the main guy for the Pittsburgh Steelers and that defense, and he's the perfect chess piece in that 3-4 defense. So I think both guys are great, and so I can't say, like, this guy is better than the other. All right, do you have a Steeler bias here? You think TJ has a chance to outshine his older brother? You know, it, it's really it, – there, there's kind of that unknown – of what happens the next five years with T.J. Watt. I mean, the trajectory, I think, of T.J. Watt's career is better than J.J. Watt's career. When you when you look at the Pittsburgh Steelers, I mean, just I, I guess this is my bias, is I know, I know what an outside linebacker does in the Steelers' defense, and they're really asked to do a lot of things. They're not just asked to rush the passer. I mean, he's also asked to cover. I think he's also asked to stop the run. Um, so and I mean everyone's asked to stop the run, but I mean he you know he's asked to he's asked to cover tight ends at times. You're asking him to really be a dynamic player. He plays a difficult position and a really key position in the Pittsburgh Steelers defense. That might be where I give him the edge when you kind of play with your hand in the dirt. I mean it, you know those are those are the best guys on the team as the guys who play with their hand in the dirt. You know he wasn't asked to do as much as T.J. Watt in that defense. The only argument that I would make towards that is. J.J. Watt plays mostly in a 3-4 defense, so he's that 5-tech. It's a tough position to play. You're not only asked to to rush the passer, but you also have to hold up against the run. And I want to remind you, I mean, I'm looking at the stats right now. J.J. Watt, over his career, his brilliant career, 10-year career, he has 101 sacks. 101 sacks in a defense where... He wasn't in a 4-3 defense. He was in a 3-4 defense. That's insane. I mean, some of his numbers, if you look at it from like 2012 to 2015, have been just astronomical in terms of his sack numbers. I mean, the guy was just double teamed like on a regular basis. Same thing that you see with with Aaron Donald. T.J. Watt has an easier path to the quarterback because you can scheme him. With J.J. Watt, you can always use the tight end. You can always use the back to kind of chip him, and he's always going to be double-teamed. You can scheme T.J. in terms of his the, the blitz packages and, and where he's coming from. So he's facing a single team just based on, on the position that he plays in. The sky is the limit for this kid, and certainly the last three years he's been getting better. I hope next year he finally wins that Defensive Player of the Year award because he certainly deserved it this year. Thank you for listening to another episode of Blitzcast. Take care, everyone.